all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. I am Dr. Allie Brown. I am a pathologist, the best kind of doctor ever. And I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Michelle Owens, who is an expert in maternal fetal medicine. She's an OBGYN at UMMC. How about all those letters? I'm the best kind of doctor ever. (laughs) (laughs) And our guest today, who might be having some technical issues up from the Delta, is Dr. Joe Pressler, who is an expert in pulmonology and critical care. Safe to say Dr. Pressler is at the front lines of this COVID pandemic, taking care of our sickest patients. Uh, We already scheduled him to be on the show today, and just yesterday we had, or just the past two days, we've had spiking numbers of coronavirus infection documented in our state. And we're going to talk about that today, among other things. If you want to give us a call, we'd love to hear your questions and comments at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also email us at women at mpbonline.org. Well, hey, Dr. Owens. Oh, hi. It's nice to see you via Skype. Of course, we're still social distancing uh, now that we're talking on that topic. So we are... Skyping each other. Yes. Um, You're at the hospital, I see. Yes, I am. You know, you know, this is like a recurrent theme. Every time we do this, (laughs) you're always at home and I'm always at the hospital. How's that work? Um, But um, yeah, still here um, and really excited to have an opportunity to talk to um, Joe Pressler, um, who many, I guess, of our listeners um, will remember because he's been a guest on our show before. And we've talked about a lot of different things. But I think um, with everything going on with the pandemic, um, we are so excited that Joe's able to join us today to kind of share a unique perspective. Um, you know, we, we have asked our guests before how it's impacted their practice, but um, the pulmonary critical care guys, um, are really the ones who deal with the worst and also have the ability to kind of weigh in a little bit on um, what is really the news of of the past few days, which is this um, continually increasing number of cases and also, you know, the hospitalization piece, even in some instances, unfortunately, the mortality associated with this disease. Um, so really, really looking forward to kind of sharing that information. Um, we've heard, you know, from a lot of the other hot spots that are more densely populated, but even for a population as small as Mississippi, I think it's really great to uh, have a perspective of what that means for us. Because, you know, even though our numbers are smaller, um, you know, that means that it's a it, it can be a bigger percentage of our population 
um, that we have impacted just because we do have a smaller um, state population compared to some of the other places that are more densely populated. So with all that being said, I see you moving now, Joe. So good morning, Dr. Pressler. Good morning. I hope you can hear me. I, I think I'm breaking up on my end a pretty good bit. So uh, bear with me. I hope you can hear me. Yeah, you sound good. You sound like your normal happy self. So that's great. Oh, I'm, I'm so happy. <laughs> I, I am. Wonderful. So, um, Joe, could you just for our listening audience kind of tell everybody where you are and what you do? And then we'll kind of just dive in with both feet, I guess. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, I practiced for a while after training uh, at university in Jackson and uh, for about two and a half, almost three years now, I've been in Greenwood uh, in the Delta, you know, one of our hot spots, uh, honestly, at Greenwood LaFleur Hospital. Um, and, you know, I heard, like I said, we're kind of breaking up a little bit. So I heard a little bit of what you were talking about with uh, the population density and, and kind of how how it's different in Greenwood. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've kind of stressed the whole time uh, w with this whole um, pandemic is we don't know anything. You know, every around every corner, there's a surprise. Uh, the things that we thought we knew, uh, I think, from population standpoints and from medical standpoints, it's just like uh, the virus pops back up and says, surprise, this isn't what you thought it was. Um, and, you know, my my thought initially was uh, that this was going to be so um, uh, so focused in the the dense more densely populated areas, and that's why you were seeing it so bad in New York City and then down in New Orleans, and, and we we expected Jackson uh, to kind of be that big hot spot. And, you know, for a while, when this first started, Greenwood was one of the, one of the first places uh, that it popped up, and um, percentage-wise, we had such a, a highly uh, a dense – hospital population, hospital admission rate, uh, compared to other smaller hospitals around the state, uh, and even compared to some of the, uh, the large hospitals. So, um, our numbers in Greenwood have kind of, um, they have not necessarily mimicked what we're seeing around the state. Um, a little, we were almost a little ahead of the curve as far as when this first popped up. Uh, I think we were a little ahead of the curve when it started to slow down. Uh, and then uh, over um, the last couple of weeks, you know, everybody across the state has said we've stayed steady. We're starting to pop back up. And, and we really didn't until uh, until this week. And, and this week we have we have actually kind of started to see that rebound. Um, we're seeing that rebound in in areas around us in Greenwood. Uh, that kind of feed into our hospital as well as is in the town itself. So, um, so what exactly is your take, Joe, right now on um, your ICU, the ICU beds and the situation? I think over the past couple of um, days, we've heard a lot from our state health officer, Dr. Thomas Dobbs, 
um, and there's been a lot of outside um, news entities that have caught the headline um, about the concern for the increases that people are seeing in Mississippi and the, the issues of potentially overwhelming the healthcare system as it pertains to critical, specifically our critical care resources, right? It's not that there's not enough beds in the hospital to hold the people, but it's about those people who really will need that higher level of care or that most intense type of care, um, whether it's ventilators and ventilator availability or the beds that will allow for more intense type of monitoring. What exactly are you seeing um, in your area? And does that appear to be at this point in time a concern for you? Um, Michelle, I'm sorry. I, I caught a few of those words. I caught a little bit of it. Um, I'm, uh, like I said, my connection is poor. So I hope y'all hear me better than I hear you. Um, I know, I think what I was gathering from uh, the question was resources. Um, yes. And, and so, you know, what we've noticed, kind of the running theme at the beginning of all of this, uh, and, and, you know, everybody here, New York was the big hotspot. New York was where all the news was coming from. And there was this debate uh, about um, about ventilator supply. And then, you know, that kind of switched and, you, you know, you saw the carrier come in and, and maybe they didn't even utilize it as much as possible. Um, I, I fully back up everything that Dr. Dobbs has been saying, though. I, you know, I, I think it is easy for uh, people that are not in a hospital or working in the hospital or working in the medical community directly to um, not grasp the severity of the issue um, or, um, you know, the concerns uh, that, that we have when we're seeing it firsthand. Um, but, yes, so what I would say is um, beds are an issue, but more of an issue than anything is, uh, is workers. Uh, when you have so many people that, uh, that come in, you know, the, the patients that we have that come in are extremely sick, and it's a lot of hands-on work. It's not necessarily just uh, putting somebody in a bed and going and checking on them every six hours because they're dehydrated and you need to give mighty fluids. Uh, you know, they need a lot of work, and so that's where I'm going with this is nurses uh, is what I've seen to be a huge um, kind of a limiting factor uh, for taking care of our patients. Uh and that's I read and heard that in other places as well. That's not just where I am, but you know you have to have nurses that will that will take care of these patients um, minute by minute, hour by hour. Their situations change and can change pretty rapidly uh, when they're in the intensive care unit uh, with COVID. And um, you know when you consider the fact that not only are they extremely ill, but you're dealing with a highly contagious disease where uh, you're you're taking on and putting putting on and taking off uh, the protective gear every time you're going in and out of rooms you know that's it is a lot of uh, it takes a lot of manpower a lot of time and you know the hospital system in general um, the medical system in general we're stretched 
Uh, we're already stretched uh, just through the way we're compensated. Um, it's it's a business uh, in general, and just like any business, you talk about your restaurants, uh, how thin the margin is uh, for the money that you take in. Uh, you know, the money that the insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, are are providing you uh, against how much it costs to take care of patients, that margin is thin. And where you see that margin especially is the number of nurses uh, available to take care of patients. Um, and so when you overwhelm the system because there are more patients coming in or the patients that are coming in require uh, more acute attention, um, then you basically overwhelm the, the number of workers that you have. And from what I understand, it's not only that these patients require more attention, it's that once they're on the ventilator, this isn't just a few days on the ventilator. It isn't even just a week on the ventilator, right? These patients tend to require this high level of care for an extended amount of time. Yeah, so, you know, that's the hope, honestly. Uh, that's that's the positive outlook and the hope is that uh, it is a pro prolonged course. Um, if they recover, and I, I talked to uh, one of my patient's family members the other day, and, and this kind of goes for, for a lot of ICU patients, but specifically um, these patients, you know, nothing good happens fast. Um, anything that happens quickly in an ICU is usually bad. Uh, and so when, when our patients don't do well, uh, they crash and they crash quick. If they're recovering and they're doing well, it is a slow recovery and a slow process. So, yes, if, if they are going to recover and if we get them through it, it is a long, long process. Well, with that, we're going to go take our first break of the hour. Uh, we'll be back in a moment to talk again with Dr. Joe Pressler, who we're very grateful is joining us today from the front lines up at Greenwood LaFleur Hospital, trying to impart on everyone in the listening audience that this is a big deal. We need to do all that we can as a community to really slow the process. Call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring after the break. We will be getting to Michael, who's calling from Starkville. So stay on the line. Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Allie Brown. I'm a pathologist and my co-host is here with me today. Thank goodness. Well, here with Eve over Skype, Dr. Michelle Owens, who is an OBGYN at UMMC specializing in maternal fetal medicine. That's the, the ladies with babies who need the most care. And we are talking today with our guest, Dr. Joe Pressler, speaking of patients needing the most care. 
Joe is, or Dr. Pressler is at the, on the front lines up at Greenwood LaFleur Hospital taking care of our sickest COVID patients among, and it, it should be said that the COVID patients aren't the only patients, right? He still has to take care of the other patients that require intensive care unit train, um, treatment. Now, not everyone, uh, stops being sick for other reasons because, hey, uh, the coronavirus is around. So, so, so that being said, he's, taking care of our COVID patients and our other patients who need care in the critical care units. Dr. Pressler, are you there? I'm here. I can hear you. Woo! Awesome. Right, we got a, we I can got a hear better you connection. very well now. We're going to go right yeah. to the phones to Michael, who's calling us from Starkville. Hey, Michael. Uh, hey, good morning, doctors. Hey, um, I, I have a question um, about the uh, disease management and uh, the data and facts that's being presented to uh, Mississippians. Um, my specific uh, comment is uh, regarding the uh, RT number, or the uh, reproduction number. Um, now, when when lockdown started, about the uh, the shelter started about the 31st. Our RT was uh, one dot uh, one flat. For people that aren't familiar, that means for every person that gets infected, they're going to infect 1.5 people, and that means your case is going to go up. Now, shelter ended around uh, the what uh, the 23rd or 24th. And our, our current RT is uh, 1.26. So um, we're, we're going to really, and we're seeing uh, elevated uh, uh, infection rates uh, daily. Um, I, I, I'm just kind of like, so when, when uh, uh, Governor Reeves and the chief uh, medical officer, they talk, they'll talk about uh, test numbers. And this is kind of like just throwing out numbers that don't mean anything. One of the most critical numbers that, Mississippians uh, should be made aware of in order to determine whether policy is working or not is the uh, uh, reproductive number, RT. Um, so I'm kind of at a loss. I mean, there's no healthcare agencies that I'm finding, like, like CDC or anybody who's publishing RT numbers, and it's one of the re- really critical uh, gauges of whether uh, um, you know, health care policies are, are working or, or not. And Florida's been on the news, and uh, uh, so let's see. Um, that, that's Florida's a great gotta, point, uh, Michael. If you listen to Dr. Dobbs, you know, he gives regular updates and he does talk about that reproduction rate of the virus. In fact, I was just watching the conference um, that he gave the day that um, 600 cases were announced. So I guess that was the day before yesterday. And he did mention yeah. that. Uh, but yeah, we I, do I, hear I, more about overall cases. Um, I think, uh, you know, the lay community and even frankly, I mean, I never really thought about these things until recently as a physician um, we are not as familiar with that rate. You know, that involves some community education, but I think it is uh, not a difficult um, concept to to understand once it's explained. And I appreciate you explaining it. Um, but I agree with you. You know, they, they do mostly talk about uh, overall cases, like a case number. Um, but but if you do listen, and MPB does uh, broadcast those press conferences live, Dr. Dobbs does, uh, who is the no, state I, health officer, does um, talk about that rate in, in also. And so I think it, you bring up a great point that we should discuss, that that rate is kind of the chance that someone's how many how many people someone with coronavirus will infect. And for a long time, when we were sheltering in place, it was less than one. So we were going in the right direction. So if your numbers yeah, are going yeah, down, it was, it, that yeah, it was, uh, rate uh, is going to be less than one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was 0.9. And uh, right, uh, that was right, right. when uh, shelter ended. And that was now when it's we over like, one. Yeah. yeah, and it was less than, less than one. In other words, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
virus was, was uh, would be so slowly extinguished from from our society. And then around uh, the uh, the so the numbers are, are hard to find. You know, uh, like you, I can't find uh, like the daily, uh, just a, a spreadsheet type of uh, count of uh, daily infection rates. Now you, you'll get uh, like you know MPB or or uh, a couple of other uh, news blogs. Uh, what the latest counts are, but it's kind of irrelevant when they're not put in context of uh, how many were there over the last 30 days. What is the rate? And uh, so, on about the uh, 16th, uh, we hit, we went over uh, the RT of over uh, one, and uh, and now we're seeing, and we're just going to see like this explosion. There's no, we're like, well, you know, everybody in Starkville, maybe 20 percent of the people are wear, wearing masks, and uh, I, I, I just think it's going to get a lot worse unless we take. Uh, I mean, just we need the governor to say, okay, masks are mandatory, or Lynn Sproul in Starkville, masks are mandatory again, because it's going to get a lot worse. And uh, and we, I think uh, we, the state needs to educate our population about this number and what it means and how that this number is critical. It's not number of tests or that you know it's like that. So they talk about number of tests, but they won't say what our. that it's like 10%, 16% are coming back positive. And just so, nah, it's just a concern of mine that we're not being educated or, or actually uh, the disease is being managed on a, on a statewide level. Um, so, Michael, thank you so much for that phone call. Um, and you do have, you made some very good points. And as, so you mentioned earlier um, in your commentary about um, not having or knowing a place where those numbers are being tracked. There is a live, um, so, you know, there are several different sites, um, you know, that are tracking different data points related to uh, COVID-19. And there is a, a, R, a RT COVID-19 um, website, which um, really addresses the effective reproduction number that you mentioned. Um, and it's, it's rt.live. And if you do that, if you visit that website um, and it's updated, I think regularly, I think from what I can see, the last time that it was updated was um, 626 at 1045 a.m. So um, and it has all of those numbers for every single state and it shows the range as well as the estimates. Um, And there's a graphic um, for those people who are a little bit more visual it's represented graphically. You can see what's considered the green area, which is where you're at one or less, and those who are in the red area, and it has every single state along with its range. So if there are people who are interested, um, the data is out there. Different outlets um, may present different data points, but the good thing is that if you are interested in knowing this information, that there are places where you can go to get reliable information to kind of put together a complete picture um, as opposed to focusing on just one thing or another. So just um, be aware that that information is out there. I think you have brought up a very good point by making people aware of the significance of, um, of that number and that data point. And if anybody is interested in tracking that, then there are some online places that they can go to do that. I find it interesting what different people want to know. Um, you know, Michael's, Michael's interest is, is on that data point. And like you said, that, that data is out there, but that's not the data that, 
you know, that is being made known publicly. Um, you know, the, the lay public wants to know how much disease is out there and, and numbers. Uh, it's, it's kind of what, what your mind will process and what's important to you. Uh, you know, for me, the, the number of, of 1,000 cases in one day was staggering. Um, more, more along the lines of what's the trend. Uh, uh, because, because that's what we always look at in, in medicine is it's not a one value at one time, but what's the trend? Are we trending in the right direction and the wrong direction? And there's so much more that you can put into that. Sure, we've got a lot higher number of cases, but we're also not just testing uh, testing more every day, but testing people we would not have tested before. As uh, a colleague of mine was saying, you know, we're testing all we're testing football players and, and testing people for sports and testing people that would never have been tested before. So the overall numbers, it's not surprising they go up. And the amount of change is kind of surprising and, and staggering. But you know, for me, uh, the number is what are our hospital beds like? What are our ICU beds like? And and those are things that that I can look at completely separate from the number of positive cases. Because just because you have positive cases doesn't mean they're getting ill, that they're sick. Um, but if they're in the hospital and they're in, in a hospital bed or an ICU bed, that's that's the number that is important to me. Yeah. And I think and for me, you know, um, Joe, my the thing I'm I'm interested in is, you know, how many cases there are that are out there. And then the other part is, you know, just the potential for continuing to spread, you know, infection. Like that's the other thing that I think. Right. Um, is really, you know, important um, for people to kind of wrap their heads around um, because I think that there was a belief at some point in time that if we sheltered in place that it would go away. And I think that there was a general frustration um, as, you know, people either were compliant or not or, you know, were wholeheartedly trying to be compliant with the new rules or the new recommendations in order to um, to slow down spread and flatten the curve when we didn't see a complete resolution and the, the virus just didn't go away. And so then we were kind of like, oh, well, we're we, we're not winning. We didn't win this. So let's just kind of go back, um, you know, and and play with the the enemy that is among us. And so I think that it's really important um, as we continue to go forward um, and find a pathway forward to figure out um, how we can kind of have some degree of balance, right? So that we we recognize the virus is going to be here, but at the same time, um, how can we be safe and responsible um, and not put ourselves in situations where we, A, overwhelm our healthcare system, or B, place our fellow man at undue and unnecessary increased risk. Yeah, and, and I, I think, once again, we you got to keep your eye on the ball, and, and everybody's got to be on the same page, and we have to remember what expectations were. And when this whole thing started, um, the whole idea of shelter in place and, and wearing masks and all of this, it never was to eradicate the disease. We never, nobody ever said that that was going to happen. Nobody ever expected that to happen. Um, the whole plan was flatten the curve, flatten the curve. And I think now, in retrospect, which is always the best way to see things, uh, the clearest way to see things, <laughs> you see exactly, exactly what happened. It, it worked. 
we flattened the curve. Um, but you also see what happened whenever we stopped and, and that curve is kind of is opening back up. And, you know, what I'll tell you from, uh, once again, the frontline person from somebody who's, who's seeing these patients and admitting them every day. Uh, and the big issue that we had, once again, it's, it's a, a number of, uh, the amount of supplies that you have, do you have the equipment that you need, do you have the the people to take care of them, but it's also do you have a system in place to do this? Because once again, this disease is novel. It's different from everything else. You have to figure out how to bring people in, how to bring people out, how to protect uh, the hospital system um, and people who aren't infected from the people that are coming in that are infected. How can you take care of these people appropriately, give them the appropriate care, keep them isolated from everybody else, and still protect the, the patients that don't have it? Uh, and and there, are different, um, there are different issues that come up every week that I'm here. And so now we're in a situation of, okay, we have patients who have tested positive in the past and are now recovered. So now we can kind of put them in, quote, general population again. Now it goes back to how often do you test people? Are you testing every patient that comes into the hospital because you don't know, uh, you know, what their, what their situation is? Is this active disease? Um, somebody who was, who was positive two weeks ago tested a nursing home, and now they're coming back. Do you put them in a COVID unit? Do you retest to make sure that they're negative? Do you get the two negative tests to prove that they're negative before you assume they're negative? There's all these things that keep coming up, uh, and, and it's just one of these, these things that we, we, we work through them as we go, but it is still a working process. But my, my initial point there was one of the biggest issues, uh, talking about flattening the curve, was what is the curve? And, and when they're coming in, we had to completely revamp uh, our system, uh, I know UMC, I've, I've been in touch with them. Everybody had to revamp their system about how they take care of patients. So I think one of the good things now is even though we may be having a spike, and, and it's not that that's not significant, um, but systems are now more in place where where we have things under better control than we did um at the beginning of this. And so just having that, those systems in place is going to be helpful. I was talking with, uh, with my partner just this morning and we were talking about it and, you know, the first month and a half, two months, it was an absolute sprint. I mean, we were nonstop 24 hours a day. Uh, we're trying to figure things out. Now we've got things a little better figured out. Um, so we're ready for, we're, we are more prepared for the numbers increasing again. Uh, and so that was what the flattening the curve was for in the very beginning, was to, to decrease the stress on the system. Now we've got a better system in place. We still have limitations. We still have to slow the disease down. But I think we're in a better place right now to take care of the numbers that are coming in than we were when this first exploded. Absolutely. Well, that is a great spot for us to take the next break of the hour. Um, once again, this is Southern Remedy for Women, and we are talking with Dr. Joe Pressler, who's an intensivist, a pulmonary critical care expert um, up in the Mississippi Delta. And we are answering your questions and um, taking your comments and calls here on Southern Remedy for Women and MPB Think Radio. We'll be right back. 
This is an MVB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy for Women, where we talk about issues of health and wellness and share a woman's perspective. Um, I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, joined by my co-host, Dr. Allie Brown, and we are talking today with Dr. Joe Pressler, who is a pulmonary and critical care specialist up in the Mississippi Delta. Um, and Joe is definitely one of those frontline workers who um, has the privilege of taking care of some of the sickest um, among us. And so has really kind of been up close and personal with this disease and um, knows from his unique perspective in one of the hot spots within our state about how much damage this virus and how much havoc um, has been wreaked by this virus. Um, so Dr. Pressler, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about um the quote benign nature of coronavirus. And um, while it is true that a lot of people who are infected with the virus either have mild or no symptoms, um, why don't you share a little bit about your experience with um, those people who do kind of escalate to a point where they need um, some additional care? And Sue, I'm sorry, I see you on the line. Um, and I just want to hear this from Dr. Pressler, and then we'll get right to you because you've been so patient. Uh, yeah, thanks, Michelle. So once again, things we didn't know what to expect when this first started, and um, and the disease was um, for us what we saw when this started. The disease was so aggressive. Uh, we would uh, we would see a few patients that would come in with mild symptoms, and we would uh, we would do what we could to get them. Basically, they needed oxygen. They needed more oxygen than what they could normally get. So we developed a system that you know, that was kind of everywhere across the nation, which is people that you would normally have in the hospital. If you could get them oxygen at home, and you felt like they were safe to go home, you would send them home. Um, people that would normally be in the hospital, we tried to keep at home. Uh, once again, to preserve resources at the hospital, uh, to try and keep uh, the virus isolated away from the hospital as much as possible. But uh, the escalation of, uh, of the acuity of the disease was so staggering. And uh, what it still boils down to that we have found is those patients that are not going to do well, um, they really, really don't do well. They, uh, they escalate quickly. Um, they have just an overwhelming um, – uh, we call it the, the cytokine storm is, is what you hear, mm -hmm. but they just have this overwhelming process in their body that no matter what you do, no matter uh, what medical – uh, treatments, medications, procedures, nothing stops it. When it gets, when it gets on its uh, track, it's a train that cannot be stopped. Uh, we see overwhelming uh, respiratory failure initially, but what I've always, for the most part, a majority of what we've seen, the respiratory failure has not been what has normally 
uh, killed our patients. Uh, that, for the most part, has stabilized, uh, and then they develop uh, kidney failure that uh, you can start dialysis for, but even despite dialysis, the body just it kicks up into the storm where uh, the potassium goes through the roof, the acid goes through the roof, and even dialysis can't keep up with it. Uh, and then um, the heart starts to fail, whether it's an electrical issue or just a complete function <clears throat> issue. Uh, and, and the thing is, we've seen all aspects of this. We've seen people die from the respiratory failure. We've seen people die from the kidney failure. We've seen people die from the storm, from heart failure. Uh, and once it gets started, it's, it's, it's unstoppable. It is an impressive, impressive disease. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how to explain it to people um, that, that don't quite understand the gravity of it, other than just to say from, from a medical standpoint, from a critical care uh, intensivist standpoint, where I see the sickest of the sick, I've never seen anything like this. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that, Joe, and thank you for, I know you must feel helpless at times when taking care of these patients, and we appreciate all that you do. We're going to go on to the phone lines and talk to Sue, who's calling us from Beaumont. Hey, Sue. Good morning. How are y'all? We are good. How are you? I'd like to make a comment. I think at least 75% of the population has already been exposed to this virus because back in uh, October and November, I was living in a town where everybody was Every day somebody you hear somebody having walking pneumonia or this strange kind of flu or the bronchitis and things. People were just odd. It was an odd sort of thing. I think this virus has already been, everybody, almost everybody's been exposed to it already. And um, I'm wondering if it's, is it not best just to let everybody get exposed and, and uh, build up some kind of immunity if you can. If you can't, then the people who can't fight it off, be treated for it, because it's a train you can't stop, as you said, you know. Yeah, I don't see the, that wearing masks is doing much good. I don't think masks do much good, but I, I know that, the, that people in this town that I'm talking about, where I was living at the time, everybody, everybody was having these odd kind of symptoms, and I think it was before COVID had a name attached to it, it's what it was. Nobody, so I mean, Sue, it wasn't COVID because it didn't have a name attached to it, but it was out It was out there a long time before people knew what it was. Sue, I'd like to weigh in if you don't mind. I got a, a couple of comments on some of the things that you've said. So um, I think part of this just goes to a lack of information um, and, and not that we're not trying to get information out, but it's, it's information that we still don't know. We still don't know a lot about this disease. Uh, as long as it's been here, even though it's been here for three, four months that we've been talking about it, from a medical standpoint uh, for, um, you know, for, for studies and, and to get all of the information and data, it, that's years down the road. Uh, this is still a, in its infancy, so a lot of information is not out there. I felt the same way in, in some circumstances that you did. Uh, I, I remember specifically January 1st, uh, I was visiting family uh, out of town, and I had symptoms of uh, this cough that I could not shake. And so a couple of months later, we say, you know what, maybe I had that back then, and there was not even a name for it. Exactly. Uh, then after working, well, then after working, in the ICU directly with patients and intubating patients and being in their face and taking care of patients on a daily basis. Two months after this, I had antibodies checked 
to see, basically to prove to myself that I'd already been exposed and was not going to get sick. You know, these antibodies basically say you've had the virus and you're good. And I did not have antibodies to this virus. So I think it is, um, I, I think it is unwise to just assume uh, that you've been exposed or that a majority of people have been exposed. That is an assumption, and we all know what happens with assumptions. Um, secondly, I think the whole uh, the mask thing I do not think is, uh, is oversold. I think it is extremely important to wear masks in any way that we can right now to prevent uh, exposure and passing along this virus. Uh, right now, just like I said, with the, with the fact that this ravages the body for the people that are going to get sick and they're going to die, we have no treatment for this. We have all the medications that have been discussed and thrown out there, like this may be the next saving grace, the Plaquenil, the Remdesivir, the, the Decadron, and um, some of them may help a little bit, but there has never been a magic bullet. There are going to be two magic bullets to this. One is going to be um, when, uh, when we get the vaccine, and that's down the road. That will be the magic bullet. But the magic bullet is not treatment of the disease once you have it. It is prevention of getting to the disease in the first place. And this is not unique to uh, this virus. This is, this is basic medicine, preventative medicine. It is much easier to prevent a disease from happening than it is to treat it and fix the body once it has. And that's exactly what we're dealing with right now. So the two magic bullets, one, the vaccine, and then two, You've got, to present, you've got to protect yourself and prevent the, the virus from uh, expansion through the community. And that's where your protective masks and everything comes in. So that's my two cents on that. Thanks for your call, Sue. Yeah, Joe, I think you make a really good point or several good points here. There's a lot of psychology behind uh, what's going on in our community right now as to, you know, if you just look at social media or you go to a public place, people have very strong opinions and I'll stress that as opinions. And it's frustrating as healthcare professionals sometimes that people don't really look at facts. Um, but this is true all the time, right? Like whenever patients, just some patients don't like what the doctor has to say and then they seek advice. You know, it can be very frustrating um, the kind of sources and information that people listen to. But I feel like this is very pronounced right now because we're all kind of mourning. We're in a state of loss and denial of normalcy, right? So um, there's a lot going on in the world in addition to, to what's going on right now with coronavirus. So I think that um, this sort of um, one-off kind of, I, I think I understand and I know from my personal experience, but we really have to look at things in a much broader context, which is very difficult to do even for physicians and nurses, et cetera. So um, I just plead with the community out there. It, it, it is a fact that masks slow transmission. It is a fact that pre-symptomatic individuals spread the virus. And it's a fact that even though you may not feel very ill from the virus, that you could transmit it to someone who does become very ill or to someone who then transmits it to someone else. So this, this is how these things work. We're going to go ahead and stay on the phone lines and go to Wyatt, who's calling us from Hazelhurst. Hello, Wyatt. Uh, good morning. How are y'all? We're doing well, Wyatt. Good. Thank you. Good. Uh, I just had a, a quick uh, comment and a quick question. Uh, yesterday, the Times-Picayune uh, reported about uh, a mom who 
uh, had been hospitalized in Baton Rouge on a ventilator for two weeks uh, and delivered. Um, the mom, unfortunately, uh, passed, uh, but the baby who was born at a gestational age of 25 weeks um, uh, survived is in the NICU. And when I hear stories like this, it reminds me of how our frontline workers and U3 physicians are uh, rock stars. Uh, so we appreciate you more than we can say. The uh, question is, is I, when Italy was being ravaged, there was this anecdotal evidence or evident uh, anecdotal recommendation that um, non-steroidal drugs may inhibit um, recovery from coronavirus. And I just wanted to know if there's any update for that, if that actually panned out with any data. Uh, should we be avoiding Advil or um, can I start back my Mobic and actually walk upright? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh- you know, I, I'll be honest with you, Wyatt, I have not seen any new data about that. Um, you know, that I agree that was the recommendation initially was um, for fevers, you want to use Tylenol instead of your, your non-steroidals. Um, I, I really don't – I don't think we have enough information right now. I don't think that it is, um, in my opinion, um, you know, the issue is not the NSAIDs. The issue is going to be – uh, protecting yourself, being careful, not, you know, wearing a mask, don't touch your face, don't get the disease in the first place. I don't think uh, the NSAIDs themselves are going to uh, predispose you to it or or make the disease process worse. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong with that. Oh, I'm just going to say, like, that, that was the use of the NSAIDs to treat kind of febrile-type symptoms. Um, correct. Was it for chronic use, like what Wyatt's talking about, just for his daily that's aches what, and pain, taking his Mobic? Right. Or I, I, no, I feel like that, it was more for when people started to become for. symptomatic. Right. That's not what it was. You know, that was not what it was looked at uh, as far as the study goes. Um, but once again, we, we still didn't know and I think don't know what we're looking at. There was also the anecdotal information about ACE inhibitors and and whether to stop them or, or whether not to stop them when patients came to the hospital. Because the, the basic idea is we, we did not and I think still don't have a good grasp of the mechanism uh, that, that is causing these things. We have some ideas. Um, there, there's definitely ideas floating around. But once again, like what we said earlier, as far as we're in the infancy of this, and, and for that real information to come, everything is still anecdotal at this point. Uh, you know, evidence-based medicine does not apply here because there is no evidence and there won't be for, for a while to come. Yeah, but, you know, it's kind of interesting, I think, that um, how that got sensationalized, right? Like, um, it was really mu- so much of a – there's a concern about um, about NSAIDs, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, my gosh, nobody used it for any reason. And I think that that was kind of right. a, a, a misinterpretation of the information that was presented that just kind of got – misconstrued in the midst of pandemic panic. Um, right. So, yeah, because I would really like for for Wyatt to be able to, to walk well. To um, walk up right, yes. <laughs> so, I agree. And, and, those, and those insights are really important um, for that. Really quickly, we're going to go to um, Debbie, who's on the phone, um, calling us from Wesson. Now, Debbie, we're in the last couple of minutes of the broadcast, so go ahead quickly with your question, please. I'm going to take another tact on this. There are so many people who understand what they understand, who don't know what they don't know, and that affects a whole bunch of people. 
So I'm going to go to a different, more basic thing. I would call on everyone to be kind and considerate and courteous, for there is no thing that someone does that is unkind that is considered to be courteous. And there is no courteous thing that someone does that is considered to be unkind. So there are things you can do in this daily life instead of what everyone says you can't do. Well, Debbie, I think that that is awesome. Um, that was a nice little nugget we got to um, kind of wrap up our show because we're getting close to the very end. Um, and I think that that's it. The thing that, you know, is kind, and we've, we've said this before on the show, um, there is a scientific basis for the recommendations of the hand washing and wearing masks and those kinds of things. But it really just comes down to common consideration and concern for your fellow man. If there are plenty of people who don't consider themselves to be in a high-risk group who've said, well, it doesn't matter whether I get it or not. Um, but the other part is that it's the it's not whether or not you get it, but it's who you might pass it on to and what that might do. And so I do believe that, um, you know, being kind and being courteous is is really at the heart of all of this. Um, and I think that ultimately, you guys know, one of the things I always say is that love wins. And I believe that ultimately it's going to be our love and concern and compassion for one another that's going to get us through this just as it has in all of our other challenges. Um, that being said, you can tell Jay saying that it's time for us to go. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you so much to our beloved Joe Pressler. Um, this is Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Dr. Michelle Owens. And for Dr. Allie Brown, join us next week. Um, same time, same station. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio.